0: Section 16 of The Age of Anne by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 16 The Union with Scotland. Section 1. The Union itself. One of the most important works of Queen Anne's reign was the Union with Scotland. Until that was carried out, Great Britain was divided into two unequal kingdoms, with the same sovereign, but in every other respect distinct. There was no real security that even the union under the same sovereign would be permanent, and that under different sovereigns the old hostility, perhaps even war, would not arise. Statesmen had therefore long wished that the two kingdoms should be fused into one, oliver cromwell who may be said to have anticipated the principle of parliamentary reform also anticipated the union and summoned representatives from scotland to one assembly with those of england but the restoration overthrew his arrangement and perhaps the memory of cromwell's change caused in the times that followed a prejudice against any imitation of his policy William III had been strongly in favor of the change, but other matters had occupied his time and attention. In his last message to Parliament, he had recommended the project of union to the members. In the first year of the reign of Queen Anne, commissioners were appointed and met, but they were not in earnest about their work. It was often difficult even to procure the attendance of a quorum of the English commissioners, And so the matter dropped a step of the scottish parliament the passing of the act of security made the absolute necessity of the union evident not only to statesmen but to all thinking men in england as queen anne was childless steps had been taken even in her predecessor's reign to settle the devolution of the english crown in the last year of william's life the act of settlement was passed by which it was decided that the sovereign of england must be a protestant and that in the case of the death of anne without heirs the crown should devolve upon the electress sophia granddaughter of james i and upon her heirs who were protestant this measure excited no enthusiasm and yet all parties in england seemed to acquiesce in it in the scotch parliament no such bill was passed but two years later the act of security was carried the effect of which was quite opposite it declared that on the death of the queen without issue the estates that is the scotch parliament should name a successor from the protestant descendants of the house of stuart but not the same as should succeed to the crown of england unless certain securities were given for the religion freedom and trade of scotland THE GOVERNMENT, HOWEVER, INSTRUCTED THE QUEEN'S COMMISSIONER NOT TO TOUCH THE ACT WITH THE scepter. IT DID NOT, THEREFORE, BECOME LAW. BUT THE IRRITATION IN THE SCOTCH PARLIAMENT WAS SO STRONG BECAUSE OF THIS REFUSAL THAT THE COMMISSIONER PROROGUED IT WITHOUT OBTAINING ANY SUBSIDY. NEXT YEAR, 1704, THE ACT WAS PASSED AGAIN BY THE PARLIAMENT. GODOLPHIN YIELDED TO THEIR PERSISTENCY AND THE MEASURE BECAME LAW the effect however not on his mind only but on that of almost all englishmen was that it was no longer safe to postpone the union in the summer of 1706 commissioners met in london thirty-one from each kingdom lord Somers presided over their meetings to his bland temper and moderating wisdom much of the success of their treating was due once or twice the queen attended at the deliberations to encourage the commissioners by her presence and it was evident that they were animated by a different spirit than that of the first year of her reign it is a law of physics that a larger body attracts a smaller as england was three times as large four times as populous and probably forty times as rich as scotland it was evident that the latter kingdom would have to adopt the constitution of the former but the english commissioners were prepared to treat the scotch in a liberal spirit the doctrine that the minority must yield to the majority required that the english weights and measures and the english coinage should be the standard for the united kingdom as however the scotch might lose by these and similar changes it was proposed that a sum of money should be paid by the english parliament to which the name of the equivalent was given elaborate calculations were set on foot to fix its amount which was ultimately settled at four hundred thousand pounds it was to be thus employed all the debts of the kingdom of scotland were to be paid off and for this it was estimated that one hundred and sixty thousand pounds or about a year's revenue of that kingdom would be required The shares of the Darien Company were to be bought up with a second portion, and the company then dissolved. A third portion was to recoup the losses caused by the change in the coinage. But when the gold arrived in Edinburgh, there was a riot, and the wagons that brought it were near being plundered. The people regarded it as a bribe. In England there was hardly any real opposition to the Union, but in Scotland there was a great deal this may have been partly due to the anger of shopkeepers and citizens of edinburgh indignant that their beautiful city should cease to be a capital partly to that of members of parliament who would lose their importance when the capital went south there was also a general feeling strongest amongst the uneducated but not confined to them that scotland was going to be placed in subjection to england The ancient glory of their kingdom was departing. But the strongest feeling was aroused on the question of their religion. There was a general fear lest, by union with England, which had an episcopal church, the Presbyterian constitution of the Scotch church should be in danger. And to this feeling, a sort of echo was heard in England, when the high churchmen seemed to regard it as unworthy to ally themselves with a Presbyterian body it was determined that no change should be made in either church and acts of parliament were passed both by the scotch and by the english parliaments to secure that each church should preserve its constitution and its independence there was to be one state but two churches the scotch share of the land tax was fixed at one fortieth if taxation had been taken as the basis of representation the scotch would not have been allowed more than thirteen representatives in the house of commons but it was felt that this number was insufficient considering the population and ancient reputation of the northern kingdom after some negotiation the number was fixed at forty-five of these thirty were assigned to shires fifteen to towns and edinburgh had a member to itself sixty-six other boroughs formed fourteen groups no shire had more than one member nor has this system been altered by later reforms the total number of forty five has been increased to sixty eight having been added by the great reform bill in eighteen thirty two and seven more by the reform bill of eighteen sixty seven this number of sixty is now divided thus shires thirty two two or three shires being divided but still having only one member for each division towns twenty-six glasgow having three members edinburgh and dundee two each and two being assigned to the universities in two groups of two each the scotch peers and representatives sat in one house henceforward they would follow the practice of england and sit in two the number forty-five formed one-twelfth of the enlarged house of commons of the united kingdom This proportion was therefore adopted for the upper house also. Sixteen peers were to be elected as representatives for each parliament. It was decided that no more peers of Scotland should be made. The peers who were not representatives were not allowed to sit in the lower house either for English or Scotch constituencies, and an old Scotch restriction that the eldest sons of Scotch peers could not be elected was retained. This latter, however, was repealed in 1832. The Scotch law and administration of justice was to remain unchanged. In many important points, notably in the law of marriage, there is still a wide difference between the Scotch and English law, the former following the old Roman law. Other matters caused less difficulty, it was easily settled that the national flag should be formed by a junction of the crosses of St. George and St. Andrew. This was a flag which James I had tried to introduce upon succeeding to the English throne, but without success. Henceforward, it became the flag of which both nations are proud under the name of the Union Jack. At the union with Ireland, this flag underwent a further change. The Red Cross of St. Patrick being laid upon the white cross of st andrew the arms of the two countries the three lions of england and the lion rampant of scotland were to be quartered according to the laws of heraldry a new seal was to be made this united kingdom was to receive the name of great britain this scheme which was drawn out by the commissioners in seventeen o six met with much opposition in the scotch parliament but it was firmly maintained and eventually carried in 1707. It is said that bribery was extensively used, as was certainly the case at the Union with Ireland nearly a century later. But this charge has been investigated and disproved. If there was any bribery, it was on a very small scale. In spite of the opposition then made to the Union, an opposition which died away only gradually in the minds of Scotchmen, there has not for generations been even a semblance of a wish for a repeal of the union this cannot be said for the union with ireland and if the proof of the goodness of political work is the way that it stands the test of time no work of the kind was ever so effectively accomplished no act of the government of queen anne so much deserves the honour and respect of succeeding generations whether english or scotch England was strengthened by having a warm ally instead of a lukewarm neighbour who might prove a dangerous foe. Scotland shared in the prosperity which she had often envied, acquired a large share of commerce, and yet did not lose the separate features of the Scottish character or in any way smother the individual glory of her historic memories. It may be well to add a note on the difference between the union with Ireland and that with Scotland, with respect to the peerage. No more Scotch peers were to be created, and no Scotch peer is permitted to sit in the House of Commons. In the Irish peerage, one new peer may be created for every three peerages that become extinct, and an Irish peer may sit in the House of Commons, but not as representative of an Irish constituency. Ireland has now 105 members in the House of Commons, and twenty-eight representative peers the total number of scotch peers is now eighty-two of irish one hundred and eighty-five but of these so many are also peers of the united kingdom that only twenty-six scotch and eighty irish noblemen are without seats in the house of lords in the union with scotland moreover the two national churches were kept distinct whilst in that with ireland they were united but in the latter case the churches were alike Protestant and Episcopalian. The injustice rather consisted in the fact that the dominant church in Ireland was not the church of the people, a very large majority of whom were Roman Catholics. It is certainly a fact that requires notice that whilst the Scotch do not desire a repeal, the Irish as a nation do. Section 2. Attempt for the Pretender. The immediate unpopularity of the Union in Scotland suggested to the minds of the Jacobites that an attempt might be made in that country in favor of the pretender. An avowed Jacobite, Colonel Hook, moved about the country sounding other Jacobites and returned to Versailles when he had obtained promises that a force of 30,000 men should rise in Scotland if only Louis would send a French army to form a nucleus louis not unmindful of the ancient friendship between scotland and france assented he may have known that in the present state of scotch feeling there was a good chance of success or that at any rate a diversion would be created in the war and that possibly marlborough certainly some of marlborough's army would be recalled from the netherlands the jacobite cause had always more supporters in scotland especially in the highlands than in england the feeling of loyalty was encouraged by the clan system the stuarts were a scotch family james francis edward son of james the second and mary of modena was born in sixteen eighty eight the year of the glorious revolution indeed his birth may be counted one of the immediate causes of that revolution for as long as james his father had no son the english people felt that however tyrannous his reign might be upon his death the tyranny would be overpassed for his daughters mary and anne following the religion of their mother were protestants and members of the church of england when this prince was born all was changed he would be brought up men said in the religion of both his parents a long line of roman catholic sovereigns stretched itself before the eyes of their excited imaginations King James, moreover, had unwisely not taken the usual steps on the birth of an heir to the throne. The high officials of state and church, whose duty it is to be present, were not invited. A story, therefore, for which there is no evidence except this omission, and which has long been abandoned even by the strongest opponents of the House of Stuart, gained credence that this prince was no prince at all, but that he had been brought into the royal bedchamber in a warming-pan. In honor of this belief, it is recorded that on his birthday in each year, whilst Jacobites wore white roses in their buttonholes, staunch Whigs wore little farthing warming pans. This young prince, it was, whom Louis the Fourteenth had promised the exiled James upon his deathbed, that he would recognize as King of England, which promise had drawn this long war upon his head, at Saint-Germain the palace which Louis had granted to James and to his family, he had been brought up as a Catholic prince, and amidst the despotic ideas of the court of Louis. He was not trained to acquiescence in the exile of his house. All around him called him King of England, and he certainly made it the object of his life to become king in reality. In English history, to distinguish him from his son, he is known as the old pretender. But a title which friend or foe alike might give him, and which was therefore used in negotiations with the French court, was the Chevalier de Saint Georges. That he was not deficient in personal bravery, he had no opportunity in this attempt to show. But he showed it afterwards when fighting, one might think somewhat unwisely, against his countrymen at the battles of Oudenarde and Malplaquet. He was now nearly twenty. The French force that King Louis was going to send to aid him consisted of five men-of-war with transports, conveying about four thousand soldiers. Just as it was about to sail from Dunkirk, when secrecy and speed were all important to such an expedition, the young prince fell ill of the measles. The ships could not sail without him. During the delay the English government received information and sent Admiral Sir George Byng with a fleet of fifteen ships which blockaded Dunkirk. The army in Scotland was small, but large forces were collected at York. Byng's fleet was driven from its moorings by high winds, and the French ships escaped. When they appeared off the coast of Scotland, signals were made according to agreement, but the Jacobites on shore made no answer to the signals, the french admiral thereupon insisted upon returning he had received positive orders not to risk a landing unless there was a rising of the jacobites to cooperate with the french troops the chevalier and many of those with him wished very much to land to try the effect of their presence confident that his friends would rise then if not before the french admiral returned however to france as quickly as possible For Bing's ships had followed and were close behind him. They caught the rearmost of his vessels, but the others escaped. As the result of this attempted rebellion to be followed after seven, and again after thirty-seven years by others, which were more successful for a time, and finally more disastrous, two bills were passed through Parliament. One a temporary suspension of the habeas corpus act. So that the government might be enabled to arrest people upon suspicion the other a law that a justice of the peace might make any one appear before him and take an oath abjuring the pretender it is as well to notice that though this attempt was a miserable failure its chance of success was probably better than either in the fifteen or in the forty-five rebellion the attack of measles and the unpreparedness of the jacobites on shore were fortunate for the united kingdom at that time it must be remembered the feeling of irritation against the union was exceedingly strong in scotland and england was engaged in a great continental war which taxed her strength time was the healer of the first wound against this we must set the reflections that in the rebellion against george i the house was new to the throne, and that even by the reign of his son it had done nothing to gain the affections of the people. After the accession of George III, born and bred a Briton not an Englishman, there is no more suspicion of disloyalty in Scotland. End of section 16